Hail and well met. I'm guessing you're wanting shelter from the storm, right? Well, it is a cold night out there. Why don't you pull up a chair by the fire? I have just the thing to pass the time. A story. I call it Meyer's Helping Hand. This is part one. Welcome to the Lavender Tavern, my friend. Every world in this realm is crisscrossed by ley lines, filaments of earth energy that connect places of worship, monuments, and historical sites. You have passed through innumerable ley lines in your life. Think of any desolate place you have been where the hair on the back of your neck stood up for no reason you could fathom. The more ley lines that intersect in an area, the more magically powerful that area is. Some unfortunate towns only have a single ley line passing through, barely enough to allow a local mystic to douse for water. Other towns are gifted with an abundance of ley lines. And of course, once the men and women of this world understood ley lines and how they could work to their advantage, they built towns and villages at the greatest crossroads of these lines. A mage might wander an unspoiled land, with enchanted spectacles on his nose, until he found a spot that burned with a grid of reddish-gold ley lines arcing across each other. Then he would send back word to those who had sponsored his expedition. Here shall be a great city. There was one place where there were hundreds, perhaps thousands of ley lines that gathered and writhed like snakes. It was destiny that this should be the greatest city ever built. Those of temperament sensitive to magic had already settled it as a village, but with the ley lines to power their efforts, it grew into a city of spires and minarets, columns and porticos. Frostford, the largest city in the known world. One cannot simply dip a wand or a staff into a ley line and extract the magic needed for a spell or incantation. It takes training and skill to handle the ley lines. It takes a minister. And so it came to pass, in a section of Frostford that was neither too poor nor too wealthy, that a young junior minister named Meyer was late for his work. Meyer was no more than twenty, with a shock of black wavy hair that never quite stayed where it should. He had hazel eyes and the babyish curious face of a child, and at this moment he stood among a pile of his clothes, looking for his staff. He could summon the staff, of course. This was a trifling cantrip for any minister. But Meyer had nearly expended his allotment of magic for the thirty days, and he did not want the ministry to sanction him. Thomas would know where the staff was. But Thomas was not here, Meyer thought. The staff was ebony. Why had he chosen ebony? With his black robes and furniture of dark wood and black walls, the staff was nearly impossible to find. The only spot of light in his chambers was... And here he turned to his cat, Bedlam. Bedlam was officially a familiar as far as the ministry knew, but the luminous white cat with light green eyes, pink nose, and ears spent his time sleeping or looking on with disdain. As Meyer now saw, the cat had his paws wrapped around the ebony staff. Give that to me, Meyer said, leaping for the cat. In a flash, Bedlam picked up the staff in his mouth and dropped it at Meyer's feet. Now, Meyer sighed, now you provide me with it after an hour of searching? Bedlam looked up with innocent eyes and began to lick his paw. 
There would be no useful argument with a cat, Meyer thought, hurrying from the house with his staff tucked in his belt. Arguments were for his employer. Meyer was late to the ministry, the largest building in the city, at the center of all traffic and all commerce, with multiple spires that soared into the sky. He ducked his head and rushed past the rows of desks where men and women copied papers and scrolls by hand. The ministry was arranged in the manner of the heavens. The higher a room was to the building's top, the more important it was. Meyer's workroom was in the basement, next to a wall that dripped water and the scrap heap. His stomach spoke to him. Thomas had not made him a morning meal to take to work. He pushed the thought aside and entered the workroom. There stood his two collaborators. Raven, a short stout woman with red hair and a green lip tint, gesturing angrily with a sheaf of papers. And Alistair, the subject of her wrath, tall and lean and fidgety, with cropped brown hair, caramel skin, and a finicky mustache. They were the least of the ministry, and it made them angry. Even if the anger ended up directed at each other. I do not want to make copies of these papers, Raven said, slamming them onto a table. I have written them, and that should be enough. Alistair had the bored look of the magister, which was only fair as he had once been a magister before being demoted. All requests for supplies must be presented with three copies to the supply magister. He saw Meyer come in and welcomed him to his cause. What say you, junior minister? Meyer sat on his wooden stool and started to lay out his work. Leather blotter, rune blocks and ink, staff holder, bottles, and papers of his own. The ministry was said to produce all of the magic and motive energy that drove Frostford, but it occurred to Meyer often that their primary output must surely be papers. I say that there should be a magical way to duplicate such papers, Meyer said, sliding into the groove of a discussion they had had many times. Hand copying always leads to the introduction of errors into a work. Raven pursed her green lips at Alistair, who simply shook his head. Not allowed, Alistair told Meyer. It simply is not allowed. Meyer did not tell Alistair that taking gold from the ministry coffers was not allowed. This is what had led Alistair to leave his exalted position as magister and come to work in the basement. There are some ministry rules which should be broken, he said instead. The former magister could not argue with that. Raven nodded. I stand with Meyer, she said. If we were free of these papers, we could spend our time serving the public. Alistair wiggled his mustache at her. How have you served the public today? Once I have copied these papers, she replied, I shall send mana along the Ardium Sector ley line to power their water wheel. They have been without water for some time, Meyer pointed out. Ardium, Alistair also pointed out, pays the least taxation of all the sectors in Frostford. They have the lowest average income in this city. It stands to reason that they may wait some time longer. He put down his own sheaf of papers on top of Raven's. Bix Sector is planning a harvest merchant festival for next week. Bix has had three festivals in the last month, Raven protested, and she and Alistair were off again. Meyer bent his head of unruly hair to his own work and paid them no mind. He too would spend much of his day writing papers, copying papers, and ferrying papers upstairs to those who read the papers, stored the papers, and no doubt, burned the papers. The next item he needed was his peridot stone. But where was it? How could he infuse the vitality glyphs for the city gardens without the peridot stone? 
Thomas would have told him he was absent-minded, that he could only keep his head by virtue of having a scarf around his neck. But everyone lost things at one time or another, Meyer thought. It was not his fault that the things he owned were simply easier to lose. There had to be a solution. That night, in his quiet and echoing chambers, Meyer put a pot of soup on the hearth for dinner and thought about the ebony staff and the peridot stone and all of the other things he had misplaced of late. A spell to retrieve them would not suffice. That type of ritual would draw enough mana from the ley lines to bring attention to him. He scratched a purring bedlam behind the ears and thought of the scrap heap. The scrap heap was a room next to his workroom where the bits and scraps of magical materials ended up after the materials themselves had been consumed. Fragments of milky opals, strips of fairy cloth, splinters and shards of warm golden amber. Nobody was supposed to remove anything from the scrap heap without signing the correct papers. But six months earlier, Warren, the old man who had overseen the scrap heap, had found wine more to his liking than papers, and the ministers were told to manage the access to the scrap heap themselves, to economize on behalf of the ministry, as the paper announcing the change had read. It was a temptation. Perhaps not a temptation for the average minister, but Meyer was not average. He lay alone in the large bedding that night, thinking and scheming. He needn't have schemed. Meyer discovered that he could have pulled a barrow into the scrap heap room and taken everything he wished. Even then, he was sure to rearrange the piles of materials just so, to cover what he had taken, and to scrawl illegible entries in the scrap heap's ledger book. If Alistair or Raven noticed that his minister robes bulged a bit more than usual, they said nothing. He had a moment's panic when he was leaving the ministry that evening, and a marble of polished topaz slipped from his robe, bouncing and clicking across the tiled floor. But at that hour, nobody noticed. The theft made him giddy, exhilarated. Not theft, he corrected himself, borrowing. His spirits were so high that he stopped at his favorite street vendor. Ogden, an elderly man who was cheerful despite his hunched back, welcomed one of his best customers. The usual, my friend! Meyer held up two fingers. Special occasion tonight. Ogden raised an eyebrow as he packaged up two servings of rabbit on a stick with potatoes. A special friend? No, no, Meyer replied, shaking his head. Just a regular friend. He walked home in the waning dusk. Wait until I tell Thomas what Ogden said, Meyer thought. And then he remembered. It was an ongoing process, it seemed gradual forgetting and sudden remembering. He knocked on the door of the rooms below him, and Suana came to the door after a time. Matronly and solid, her long gray hair was in a braid and curled up under a kerchief. She looked at him with button eyes in a seamed face, but smiled when he offered her the second meal he'd bought. I remember when I worked at the ministry, Suana said as they ate the rabbit on a stick in Meyer's rooms. Long before you. Probably before you were born. Was it very different? He asked politely, his mind on what he had looted from the scrap heap. We ran wild like children, Suana said, then smiled at her own memory. No supervision, few restrictions. We were the ones who made the city move all on our own. Meyer wondered if that ministry had been looser and freer, or simply more negligent. Suana misunderstood his silence. Do you miss him? She asked at last. Of course not, Meyer said, and glanced involuntarily at the spot on the wall 
where one of Thomas's paintings had hung, a watercolor of the city in mists of rain. Now there was only a light rectangle to mark where it had been. There is nothing to miss. When the meal was done and Suana had gone, Meyer spread his takings from the scrap heap on the table in the same way he would lay out his work surface. Then he pondered. Finding what was lost, a location spell would not use much mana, but a location spell only worked within a couple of feet of the spellcaster. Meyer had the tendency to leave things all about his rooms. A location spell to cover the entire property would expend more mana than he was paid in a week. There would have to be a rudimentary mind at the heart of the spell, an intelligence that could search the areas that Meyer instructed, look for the object he requested, and locate it. To bring the object back, he could use apportation, the transmission of an object through the air, but that was also expensive. If something were to carry the object in a manner similar to how Bedlam carried mice, then it might be doable. It was a complex problem, and Meyer spent many evenings with the gems and woods and cloths from the scrap heap, alongside his ebony staff and runes and glyphs. Then he discovered an obstacle. He could speak the usual incantations that he used every day in his work as minister. The more complex ones he would need for this task, however, were beyond his vocal range, both too high and too low. He tried the chance for a week, but ended up with a sore throat and needed nettle tea to soothe it. The path he took to and from the ministry each day passed a temple framed by columns and greenery. He had heard the singing of vespers many evenings when he had been late coming home. Oh, how Thomas had begged him not to come home late when he was cooking dinner. Those singers had the range he needed. Perhaps they could also teach him to sing. The fall weather had turned the air cold, and Meyer was glad that he'd worn his winter robes into the temple. The marble rooms were even chillier. At that late hour, there was only one acolyte tending to the vestal fires, and Meyer went over to warm himself by the flames. The acolyte had long, copper-brown hair and a bushy beard. The flickering dim light made him look as if his head was on fire. He was banking the coals with a distracted expression, but turned to Meyer with inquisitive eyes and a wry smile once he'd neatly finished his task. "'Are you looking for something?' he asked. "'No,' Meyer said. "'Yes. I don't know. I'm not in need of any prayers.' The acolyte barked a laugh. "'I think we could all use a prayer now and then. My name is Getty.' Meyer. They shook hands. Gettys were dry and warm. I've heard your choir sing vespers in the evenings, Meyer said. They're quite good, aren't they? Getty asked. When I started teaching them, they sounded like a thunderstorm in a cooking pot. Meyer explained his problem. He did not, could not say that he wanted to extend his vocal range so that he could create more powerful spells. Getty looked at his ministry robes and listened to his vague explanation, and seemed to make the connection himself. I can get you up one octave and down two octaves from where you are now, he proclaimed after listening to Meyer sing a verse of well-known song. That should help with your... project. And in return? Meyer asked. A donation to the temple? Such arrangements were common in Frostford. Getty smiled his canny smile. As you can no doubt tell, we have been having issues with the heating system. One of the Vestal girls tells me there's a partial blockage with the mana in the temple's ley line. 
These arrangements, too, were common in Frostford. Meyer promised to look into it. It was, in fact, his job to do so. By order of the ministry, ministers lived in the neighborhoods they supported. The ministry claimed that this policy brought ministers closer to the people, but Meyer and Alistair both felt it more likely that those ministers who were inconvenienced by a district's mana issues were more motivated to solve them. As with the spell design, it was slow going. Getty had Meyer open his mouth wide while singing, point his chin downward toward the floor, and press his tongue down onto the floor of his mouth. This, Getty explained, would help him to sing higher notes. Meyer thought that the expression he wore during this exercise made him look like someone who had been caught doing something wrong. But he said nothing, and continued to practice on his own. In the bath, while cooking, and even late at night until Bedlam yowled and Suana banged on her ceiling with a broom. Leaves fell from the trees and the weather turned even colder, but the temple was finally warm with mana heat. When Getty thanked Meyer, he protested, saying that he'd had nothing to do with it. Ministers were not supposed to gain recognition for their work. They toiled anonymously on behalf of the ministry. But thank you regardless, Meyer said to the acolyte, grinning. Getty's sly smile was infectious. Every week after a surreptitious nip of the temple's sacramental wine, Meyer would practice singing lower and lower notes until his throat ached and his voice scraped along the floor. Getty would not let him rest until he had completed each exercise. Then he would send him home with a sprig of mint leaves tied up in a red ribbon to steep as a tea, and strict instructions not to talk until the following morning. Meyer sang, and Getty listened. And one night, Meyer was ready. He'd already written out the incantation, and now all he had to do was speak it in the correct tones. Having locked Bedlam in the other room, Meyer passed his hands over the mandala he'd sketched onto a scrap of parchment. He sang the high notes, then the low notes, and finally tossed a handful of black salt into the air. And there it appeared. The demon was about a hand's length tall, with folded wings and a beaky head. Its eyes did not blink. Bedlam meowed from the other room. Meyer would have to keep an eye on the cat to make sure he didn't eat it when he was asleep. But what to call it? The word demon was too... prosaic. Meyer thought of Getty's instructions, how he had taught him to raise and lower his voice by steps. Stepwise, he thought. Stepwise is your name, he told the demon. It nodded. Stepwise, find my ebony staff, Meyer commanded. The demon extended its wings flapped around in increasingly wide circles, and stopped when it saw the staff on the floor next to Meyer's bedding. Then, Stepwise grasped the staff in its clawed hands and flew back to Meyer, depositing it neatly at his feet. Excellent, Meyer thought. There would be no more misplacing of objects. He experimented with how he could command Stepwise. The demon responded to find, locate, and search, followed by the name of a tangible object. The mana requirements were minimal, judging by how cool his staff had remained during the process. The next morning, Meyer awoke and bade Stepwise to fetch him a cup of water. The demon did so. For once, he was up early, and for once, he did not misplace anything. It was almost disappointing. Thomas would have been proud of him, however. The next morning, though, Meyer could not find his staff. He prepared to make the usual search, then remembered, and said, Stepwise, find my ebony staff. 
One of the reasons Meyer had settled in this building was the large window facing the street. Now he watched, horrified, as Stepwise passed through the window and kept going. He must have left the staff at work, Meyer thought. There would be a trail of mana right from his house to the workroom. He waited until Stepwise returned with the ebony staff, then made his way to the ministry. Nobody had noticed. Nobody said anything. Perhaps it was a similar situation to the disorganization of the scrap heap, he mused. There were simply too many ley lines and too much mana in Frostford to keep track of all of it. During the meal break, however, Alistair took Meyer aside. You should watch yourself, he cautioned. You are a clever young man, and the Ministry does not like clever young men. Meyer was too satisfied with Stepwise to pay much heed to the warning. And if the Ministry does not like clever young men, then who ends up leading the Ministry? He demanded. The race is not to the smart nor the swift, but to the constant, Alistair replied. And the pushers of paper. Constant, Meyer thought that night over a few mugs of ale in his lodgings. Where had Constant gotten the Ministry? Nothing but papers and blocked mana. What the Ministry needed was action. When he was quite drunk and trying fitfully to sleep, there was a ruckus in the street. A young couple, two men, were shouting at each other. A lover's quarrel. Meyer could not sleep. He needed to sleep. Stepwise, he said blearily. Find me some peace. He heard the flapping of tiny wings. Then he dozed, and when he woke again a few minutes later, there was silence. The next morning, he wondered aghast if Stepwise had intervened in the quarrel. That afternoon, he saw the couple, arm in arm, laughing as if all were forgotten. When he asked Suana, she said that she'd heard their midnight argument had suddenly dissolved when two bouquets of flowers appeared in the couple's arms. This, she confided to him, was merely a rumor. Stepwise, Meyer thought with both a chill and feeling of odd pride. He had imbued the demon with a curiosity spell. Until the object requested was located, Stepwise would continue searching. Clearly, it had gone beyond the simple curiosity spell, and the demon was now able to answer other requests. Presenting the couple with bouquets had been one way to find Meyer some peace. Meyer did not dare test Stepwise further. He kept it locked in a small cage on the top of a chest of drawers, high enough that Bedlam could not reach it, though he kept trying. Winter solstice was fast approaching, and Getty had invited Meyer for dinner at the temple after the choir practice. The meal was beans and rice. It was always some form of beans and rice, and Meyer thought that sleeping in the temple dormitory must be a form of hell after so many beans. But the meal was well-seasoned, and Getty was good company. Plans for the solstice? Getty asked as they ate. This was a common question in Frostford. Men and women alike spent much gold on solstice gifts, trips, and celebrations. Meyer shook his head. My parents have different beliefs, he said. Do tell. They came to believe that I should marry a woman and father many children. I came to believe otherwise. Then they came to believe that I should move out of their lodgings. Getty smiled his wry smile. I believe I understand the situation. He shook his head. I was the proverbial baby in the basket on the temple doorstep. He looked at Meyer. They must have cared for me. The temple elders say that I was well-fed, clean, and 
wrapped in a good blanket. Would you wish to meet them? Meyer could not stop himself from asking. Getty thought, then shook his head, bushy beard moving from side to side. No, I imagine they had a good reason for giving me up. Our relationship ended when I arrived at the temple. I have no desire to find them. Meyer nodded. Now that you have spoken out of turn, Getty said impishly, let me ask you a question. Is there someone in your life? Someone special, perhaps? Meyer thought of last year's winter solstice filled with light and the dark one that faced him this year. No, no one. Getty frowned. An unusual sight. I feel there is something you are not telling me, sir, he said. A large portion of your life is in shadows to me. That night Meyer realized that he had no idea what Getty meant. He had his work at the ministry, his workmates, his few friends, and now Getty. There was nobody else. His life was as full and complete as anyone's. Getty brought Meyer a solstice cake. Getty brought Meyer a solstice pie. Then Getty brought Meyer a solstice blanket, and even Meyer was not so blind as to see what was happening. This is very good of you, he said with a smile when Getty presented him with the red and white blanket in his quarters only seven days before the winter solstice. Do I really stand no chance? Getty asked. They were seated in the main room of Meyer's quarters, with the blanket over their knees in the winter chill, and Bedlam lying curled against Getty and purring wheezily. Meyer shook his head and smiled helplessly. Really, there was nothing to say. Getty was sweet, he was handsome, and he brought the most savory of solstice cakes. Getty waved a hand around the lodging. Meyer, there is someone here, he said at last. I live alone, aside from Bedlam, of course. Getty shook his head. I see him in your eyes. I see him in the lines of this room. There is a ghost that haunts you, Meyer. Then he dropped his hand and Bedlam started licking it. I cannot banish this ghost without your consent. There is no ghost, Meyer repeated firmly. I am alone and unhaunted. Getty peered at Meyer. I believe that you believe that, Minister Meyer. Getty left without pausing at the door as he had done so many times. Meyer belatedly realized that all those times he had wanted Meyer to kiss him. This time there was no chance and no offer. Meyer lay sleepless in his lonely bedding that night, and after much thought, opened the tiny cage and summoned the demon. Stepwise, he said. I want you to find... He pondered a moment, then spoke one word. Stepwise nodded, and he saw the glyph on the demon's head spin and spin. That would be the last thing he would search for, he promised himself. The ebony staff he would leave in the same place every night, and he would no longer need stepwise. No more mana need ever be expended on this project. Until that afternoon when he came home early from the ministry, after a meeting had been cancelled, and saw stepwise fly from one nearby house to the other. Meyer bounded up the stairs, rubbing his hands through his wavy hair and burst into his quarters. Bedlam! he cried, thinking the cat must have let the demon out. But Stepwise was in his tiny cage, and from Meyer's bedding, Bedlam gave the young mage a look of utter contempt. 
Meyer looked from stepwise to the window and back again, thoughts whirling in his mind. He felt trapped in a loop. If stepwise was here, then stepwise could not be in the street. But if stepwise was not in the street, what had he seen? He flung the contents of his task drawer onto the table and sketched a quick symbol. A straight line with cross hatches, a zero with a line through it on the left, and a plus sign on the right. Then, he concentrated and chanted the incantations for tracking as he carefully drew his finger back and forth across the line symbol. Two red spots appeared just to the right of the zero with the line through it. One of the spots was his stepwise, and that meant... As he watched the diagram, a third red spot appeared. There was a simple explanation for the duplicate stepwises, Meyer thought, pacing back and forth. Someone had seen the demon. Someone with knowledge of a curiosity spell and the right incantations. And that someone had used the mana reservoir to create a copy of stepwise. A perfect copy. Then a second one. He stopped pacing and smiled. This problem could be solved at once. All he had to do was ask his stepwise to find the duplicate stepwises, and then he could deconstruct all three of them. He went over to instruct his stepwise, and... There were five red spots on the line symbol. This still was not a problem, Meyer thought in rising panic. He could tell stepwise to find the first rogue stepwise, then the second one, and... Then there were nine red spots on the parchment. Now it was time to panic. Well, it's getting late. The next time you come back, I'll tell you the rest of the story. Tonight's story was told by Trevor Schechter. Find our credits, merch, and more stories at LavenderTavern.com. Interested in having your short story told at the Lavender Tavern? Submit a copy of your writing to us at www.faustianonsense.com forward slash Lavender Tavern Submissions. The Lavender Tavern is written by Jonathan Cohen and produced by Faustian Nonsense.